Today's episode features Olivia Giordano, who is the assistant audio on the Tootsie Tour with me. Olivia takes us through how she got into sound engineering and design, and the always exciting and changing responsibilities of being an audio engineer on tour. We then discuss the difficulty of walking the line as a young woman in an authority position who has to frequently teach and lead locals every week and thus navigate age, gender, and power dynamics. We talk about how the push for arts equity is interconnected with reforming the education system as a whole, as well as funding the arts so that people from all backgrounds can pursue it without worrying about how they're going to make a living wage. Lastly, we break down Christopher Tin's Mato Cara Mieru to help demonstrate how sound designing is analogous to composing as an approach to building and layering musical elements in a compelling manner. So happy to have you. Are you down to just say hello and introduce yourself? Yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Olivia Giordano, and I am a sound engineer and technician working in live events. Currently, we're about to finish off tour. Five shows left. Five shows left of the first national tour of Tootsie. Been a whirlwind. It's been a huge whirlwind. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really excited to get into it. Um, also, just a shout out before we start all of it, because the sound quality is going to be about 100 times better than it has been, because we have a sound engineer helping us out this episode. <laughs> so we just did a little mic placement, and um, yeah, just a shout out to start it off. Ah, oh, thank you, thank you. Um, are you good to kind of just walk us through your musical journey from the beginning leading up until now? Like a lot of people, I started off... Um, in music before I went into more of the backstage technical world. Uh, I did, when I was growing up, two years, two or three years of piano, and then I switched to playing the oboe, which I played for 11 years, 12 years, something like that. Um, and then along the way, I also picked up tenor saxophone because I wanted to do marching band because I'm just that cool. Yep. Uh, and also did choir and voice, not intensely, but I enjoyed it. Um, and I got into doing my school's musicals, and I performed on stage. You know, solid alto, too, uh, <laughs> singing in the ensemble, because I never had a named role, because I cannot act to save my life. But that's okay, because that's not what I'm meant to do. And eventually I took a course over a summer at Carnegie Mellon University that was focused on the technical side of theater. And it was essentially uh, an intensive in a bunch of different areas. And that's when I found sound design, which was the perfect meeting of theater and performance that I loved, but also with music. And also I didn't have to be on stage, which was the real win there. And we did uh, a piece of theater. It's called Boal. I wanted to help with it in some way, and it was all volunteer. And a good friend, who I'm friends with to this day, was doing a lot of the sound design, didn't have an idea for a piece. And I said, oh, I know an, or an orchestral piece that this would work really well underneath the movement that the actors were doing on stage. Because I had recently played it in an ensemble. And... Seeing the emotional reaction that people had 
to the piece when it was combined with the movement and the story the actors were telling on stage was amazing. It really, it taught me a lot about how the smallest changes can make the biggest difference. Yeah, it's cool to think about because I think people who don't know about the whole crew world, you kind of think like, oh, it's like the people who are really important and they're necessary to make the show go on, which is true, but I think it doesn't necessarily always get the credit of like, oh, it can also really enhance a show and it brings so much. Yeah, and that's fair. I mean, a, a lot of times it is not necessarily something that people are exposed to. Yeah. Um, but it is really cool when you get to see big, big productions like Wicked or like Phantom of the Opera or, yeah. you know, going more down the Vegas route, Ka, and you get to see all of the engineering and time that goes into those pieces and it's mind-blowing. Yeah, totally. Did it not necessarily, like, bother you? This is also coming from, like, a trumpet player attention whore, so I'm just, like, interested in picking your brain. But was it a weird transition at all going from, like, on stage as a musician to even trying acting a little bit to, like, kind of a thankless, behind-the-scenes kind of job? Or not really? It it was weird. Uh, I mean, there was definitely a transitionary period, but also I have never been someone who likes the spotlight being on me. Yeah. Um, I did it because I love the music, mm. and I love musicals in general. It never bothers me when people don't know what I do, but I do appreciate when people take the time to say thank you. It's, yeah. it's always wonderful, but I always, I always joke that there will be sound, and sometimes that's the most anyone needs to hear. <laughs> Just yeah. like, it will happen. You don't, you don't necessarily want all the details, but... It'll be there. Like, I got you. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have any, like, favorite shows or, like, when you see shows or experience things, like, can you remove yourself and just kind of, like, take it all in? Or does being in the sound designing profession mean that you're, like, hyper-analyzing and, like, critiquing and, like, looking for different things that normals, that normal people wouldn't look for? It's definitely very hard to turn that part of my brain off when yeah. I go see a show. A really good show will have you so engrossed in the story that you forget to look at everything else. Yeah. Uh, I saw Come From Away, Standing Room, on Broadway, uh, pre-pandemic, and I sobbed. Like, two numbers in, I was crying because it was just so amazing. The person next to me was very confused. <sighs> Love but that show. <laughs> it's it's amazing. I'm so sad that it's closing. Right. Um, but yeah, a good a good good show will pull pull me into the story. But also, I enjoy looking at everything else that's going around. Yeah. And looking at where the speakers are placed and sure. oh, what what are the lighting positions? Oh, that set piece that came on. I wonder if that's automated or did some, is there a person behind there like running things? There's a bunch of little stuff that always happens, but I'm the same way. But it's... just from more from the musician's like point <laughs> yeah. of view. Like I saw Six over the layoff and I was so excited to see it. Um cuz I'd heard great things and it was very like female empowerment vibes and I was really excited. I couldn't enjoy it, and it was so frustrating. Um, I really loved the all-female pit and the all-female cast, and the pit was on stage, which was, like, really fun, but I was just staring at them the entire time, 
and like analyzing like their stage presence and like how like their parts are either fun or not fun and like all the pre-recorded instruments like it was just it's hard to yeah turn that mode off and I can't imagine how that is also from the crew perspective where you're like thinking about like what's not even in front of you oh for sure yeah and <laughs> especially you mentioned pre-recorded things especially when the I love seeing a band on stage but when I hear something and I don't see it on yeah. stage, I'm always like, ah, yep. I clock it. Or it's always interesting to me as well when people will say, oh, I need to get th stuff done. I'm going to listen to, you know, classical music. I am the exact opposite. Same. Classical music, I will start analyzing it, not intentionally, but I'll just start listening be like, oh, that's a really nice, oh, that French horn solo. Okay, now we have the counterpoint coming up underneath Oh, it's in it's in the woodwinds. What is? Oh, it's the clarinet. That's an interesting choice. I wonder why they did that. Yeah. And then twenty minutes has gone by, and I've listened to three movements and gotten zero of my favorite work done. <laughs> well, give me that pop trash as the background music. <laughs> Honestly, lately for me, it's been lo-fi. Hmm. Because there's usually not a ton of lyrics to it. There's it's usually very simple. Other than that, it's like folk and acoustic. Because it's usually a voice and two people playing yep. guitar. And I'm like, all right, I can handle that. Yeah. Brain doesn't go crazy, crazy. Mm -hmm. um, are you cool to kind of like walk us through the life and responsibilities of being an audio engineer? And kind of what does that entail? Since most people are just not going to know. Um, yeah. So I can use the tour we're on currently as an example. So as an audio engineer, you're responsible for all of the audio that everyone needs to do their job. So not just the cast's microphones, but also the microphones on all of the musicians and also the speakers that are on stage for sound effects and also speakers that are backstage so that the cast, when they're in their dressing rooms, can hear the show to know when they need to make their next entrance. Um, to that end, when we're, loading in a, when we're loading Tootsie into a new theater, which happens every week, um, the first things that we handle are setting up all of our speaker towers and then running cable to everything. So not just one or two things, it's a cable that is 250 feet long and has connections for wireless data so that we can log in to a computer and mess with the speakers to make it sound correct for a room. It has power so that the speakers will actually turn on. It has signal so the speakers make the noise we want them to make. Um, so you have all of that stuff, and then you also have to go in and make sure everything goes to the right locations and make sure all of the cables plug into the right places and teach people who don't know your show specifically how everything needs to fit together. So it's right. a lot like building a puzzle where you know where all of the pieces should be, but then you get into a room and there might be an extra row of seating there so you can't put things where you want them. Or there might be a theater that has a great amount of history to it, so you have to be very careful that you don't scratch the beautiful plaster work and painting that are on all of the walls when you're doing everything. Yeah. 
so there's all of that. And then every day, it's turning everything on, battering up all of the microphones, making sure everything works properly, making sure everything in the orchestra works properly, uh, making sure that everything is going down back to the orchestra for the in-ear speed, and that that is working properly. And then going around, and as the assistant audio, I'm backstage, so making sure all of the actors have what they need if anyone says something isn't working right, or if something feels weird, I go to them, I'll help them figure out what the problem is, find a solution for the, that day, and then what can I do to fix it for the next day. Also being on tour, I know the front of house track, which means going in, to the sound console that is somewhere in the audience seating and mixing the show two or three nights a week so that my boss has a night that they're not mixing and has time to do paperwork and update things and get ready for the next venue. But also so that if my boss gets sick, I can mix the show and just teach someone how to do my backstage track. Yeah, that's a lot of variables. <laughs> um, I'm guessing if you are on tour and enjoy touring, you enjoy all the variety and the crisis management um, and even just like how is... How long does it take to load in, load out? How does it feel like to jump from venue to venue? Do you like that it changes so often? I love it. It's an interesting new challenge every week or every day, depending on what yeah. tour you're on. Because some tours will start at 8 a.m., put everything for the show into the building, have a show that night, and then immediately after the show finishes, you take a break and eat a meal, and then from... 11 p.m. to 2 or 3 a.m., you're taking the show out of the building, sleeping on a bus for a couple hours, and then doing it all again. It's crazy. It is. It's also... Every venue is unique, so there's always some problem to solve or some creative solution you have to make. Yeah. So you don't get stagnant. You don't get complacent. That's yeah. the word. You don't get complacent because there's always something changing and keeping your brain going. Yeah, I, I also do have to agree that, like, I like the variety of different theaters. I do find the traveling really exhausting and, like, hard, but I do like that every week I'm hearing new things that I've never heard before, and, like, the spaces really do inform the sound so much, so definitely keeps it fun and fresh. It does, especially, especially when you get to older theaters that maybe weren't built for theater and live event. Maybe it was meant to be more of an auditorium for lecturing. So mm -hmm. it's built in a different way. It's going to sound very different. Uh, versus ones that are built from an era of vaudeville. So you might not have as big of a stage because they didn't have huge production numbers happening. They had trios and quartets singing on stage and doing mm. variety shows. Right. And also you guys do something that hip musicians don't have to really interact with at all, is that you pick up locals every week. So for those of you out there, um, the band is fully self-contained. So it's like 10 of us and it's the same musicians and we all have played the show a million times together. So we're kind of like a unit and we jump from city to city and we kind of just, yeah, do our sound check. Um, and we're kind of ready to go. But the crew 
they couldn't travel a million people to do all of the work that the crew does, so kind of like a core crew team travels city to city, and then you guys train people every week to kind of like help out and make it happen. Um, do you like that? Do you like meeting new people every week? Do you like teaching people the ropes? And like, it seems like a cool way to meet a lot of people and work with a lot of people and teach if you're into that. It is. Most of the places we go, you start with a baseline of knowledge already because they know theater. They just don't know your show. Mm -hmm. So they understand stage left from stage right, but it's definitely a skill you have to develop on how to succinctly and effectively show someone how to do something and then teach them how to do it without you needing to be there because you might have to be somewhere else doing something else. Yeah. Because an actor has a quick change, so you need to make sure they don't get run over by this set piece, but you need your locals to be setting the next thing to go on stage in the wings and putting it together. It's... A challenge, but everyone we work with has been lovely. We've been very fortunate with this tour that we're playing some really amazing venues, like the Dolby Theater in Los Angeles, where my local uh, is the person who usually coordinates all of the microphones for the Oscars. Oh my god. Yes. He was amazing and a delight to work with and had so many stories to share from the Oscars and from LA but also from film and TV and working rock and roll concerts with like names as big as Cher. That's crazy. Yeah and there's always something to learn from the people that you're working with and I learned quite a bit from him. I've also learned quite a bit in Tucson and Denver and every city that we've played. Because as long as you treat people with respect, they're going to do everything they can to make your show run perfectly. Mm -hmm. And our crew was very good about that, and our locals have returned the favor and have gone above and beyond. Yeah, it is a cool way that you're like also pitching like what you're doing. It does sound so much less like monotonous than what I do. It seems every day is interesting. Every week is like interesting and brings its own challenges and rewards. So that's it makes it sound very exciting. It definitely does get monotonous, I will say, when you're just running the show. Mm -hmm. But you find ways to keep yourself engaged and you find moments to joke around in a way that doesn't affect the show, like high-fiving an actor every time he exits or right. making a silly face at the person also waiting in the wings across the, the stage from you. Yeah, totally. My favorite is that the, during the opening number, um, there's like a big hit and then the actors all like turn around and like fold their arms in like a sassy stance and I always have Neek in my line of vision and she always makes a face at me and... It just keeps it fun. It keeps it fresh. I always end up laughing, and then you can't play trumpet while you're laughing, so I need to, like, get it together so I, like, don't mess up the next entrance, but it's the little things. It really is. Especially for that number. It's so stop and start. You yeah. have to really pay attention. Exactly. Oh, I was also going to bring up that, yeah, things do get monotonous, but also sometimes crazy shit happens, and I wanted to tell the story about the peanut M&Ms. Oh, the M&Ms. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was in Ugh. Austin, 
and we were playing a show, I think it was a Thursday or something, some weeknight, and some lady in the front row had accidentally spilled an entire bag of peanut M&Ms, and it, like, rolled through and hit our first trumpet player at the time as we were gearing up to play one of the ballads of the song. So we were like gearing up, there was like a little piano intro and he was ready to come in and all of a sudden you were just hearing these little like clinks of like these peanut M&Ms hitting his head, (laughs) hitting his trumpet, like it was a disaster. But it was so funny, like we were just like in shock and he like stood up in the pit and like screamed, what the fuck? And like threw a peanut M&M back over the railing, sat down. I did not know that. Oh, it was crazy. Can I tell you that from my perspective? Please. So, from my perspective, I was backstage that night, and all I knew was that the musical director and conductor was looking to his right and looking very concerned. And I knew something was off because the song didn't sound the same as it normally did. Yeah. The groove wasn't, it was there, but it wasn't quite locked in like it normally was. So then my boss, also noticing the MD looking concerned, asked me to go to the orchestra pit and just check on everyone, make sure everything was okay and that nothing broke. So I get down there and all I see is the conductor still looks concerned, the entire row of brass is giggling and still trying to play, (laughs) and there are little bright colors on the ground. Yeah. (laughs) And then I make my way over, trying to be as quiet as possible, and I ask Steve, the person who got rained on, if he's okay, and all I got from him between rests was, I got pelted by Skittles. (laughs) He continues giggling and then comes in for his next entrance. It was so funny. It was a really funny, like, I think his immediate response was, like, super pissed and, like, confused, as one, you know, would be, um, and very thrown off, but he really, yeah, then he became, like, super giggly and was, like, throwing them around the pit and, like, trying to hit Josh and, like, offering them to me <laughs> off of the floor to eat and, like, it very quickly became really funny. It did. Um, very awkward confrontation between him and the lady during intermission a couple minutes later. Oh, goodness. Um, but yeah, that poor lady, I know, I'm sure she felt horrified. As she should. As she should. Um. But things that you just don't (laughs) think would be a part of the job. Stuff happens. Yeah. It was really great, because I went back upstairs, explained to our stage manager what had happened. She's giggling. And then I tell my boss, everything is fine, I'll tell you at intermission. Yeah. Because I didn't want to just over radio be explaining this the Eminem saga yeah just you know during the final number of act one yeah but we all we all got quite a good laugh out of it yeah it's kind of like masochistic where I feel like at least in the pit the main things that make us like excited or giggly are when things go horribly wrong definitely helps to have like 230 shows under your belt like very smooth at this is that, point. Is that what we're at now? 230 something? T- you, you probably have done more because we have the layoff, but um, by the end of this weekend I'm going to be at 230. So it's pretty crazy. Wow. 
I don't want to think about how many hours of my life has been dedicated to one show. <laughs> it's wild. Um, I guess, how has your tour experience been overall? What have you loved about it? What have you not loved about it? I've loved getting to do what I love. Full stop. Um, it's been wonderful getting to know everyone who's on tour and getting to know a show so intimately that I can tell from four measures of music that something's wrong in the brass section. Yeah. Only to find that it's a M&M shower. Sure. Um, I've loved getting, also just getting to interact with everyone that we've traveled through all these cities and met. Because like I said, you learn something from every person you're interacting with. It is really hard, though, to be away from home for 17 weeks at a time, and your day off most of the time is a travel day. Which is not a which real is, day off. It's a day off from work, but it's not a day to relax or a not day, a day that you rest. can rest or catch up on all of the things you need to do, like pay your bills, right. make sure that your doctor's appointment that you had to schedule three months ago is still going to work with your schedule. Yeah. All of the normal life things that you would do in the evenings or on the weekends that you just don't have that time to do. Mm -hmm. And it's also been hard living out of hotel rooms. You don't realize how much you miss the little creature comforts until you're away from them for so long. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's still a great job, and I'm really glad that I got to meet all of you. Yeah, ditto. We've had some fun moments. We have. Yeah. The grilled cheese, man. It hits different. It's super <laughs> fun. We have our final grilled cheese going down this Sunday. Yes. Um, where every couple Sundays we gather, and yeah, exactly what it sounds like. We just get the old hot plate out. Someone's on cheese duty, someone's on bread's duty. And, yeah, things like a nice grilled cheese, you really miss it. Yeah. You really do. Very comfort foodie. Even if it's, even if it's hard to get groceries that week, so we're using American cheese from the convenience store deli and a loaf of plain white bread. And some days we get fancy. Sometimes, sometimes you get prosciutto and fresh mozzarella and tomatoes and pesto. Those days we thrive. Oh, those days we eat three grilled cheeses. Yeah. No, but it's, it's fun. I, I definitely agree, too, that it's not easy to live out of hotel rooms. Yeah, Mondays are maybe the hardest days of the week for me to just, like, uproot every week. But, yeah, once in a lifetime opportunity. And, like, we're young and we're not tied down yet. And, like, it seems like now's the perfect time to do it. Exactly, yeah. And you're planning on continuing to do it. Yes, I'm planning to go out on tour again next year. Very exciting. Yeah. So exciting. Um, I wanted to pivot a little bit. What are the challenges of being in a position that is so largely male-dominated? It seems, at least from the outside, that it could be similar to my challenge of just being around older men 99% of the time and kind of dealing with some, like, age-gender power dynamics. There's definitely a power dynamic part to it. Most of my mentors have been men. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also very fortunate that those are men who are aware that it is a male-dominated field and actively work to lift other people up. There have been times that are very challenging because people 
might not afford you the same respect that they would give to someone else, or might feel the need to instruct you on your job when you know your show very well. Yeah. It's a skill to learn how to deal with that, but it's prevalent in a lot of places. That said, everyone usually knows who those people are who will have that reaction, and half of the time you will get other people apologizing for them on their behalf. That Oh, yeah. Acknowledging that they shouldn't say the things they do or behave the way they did. Do people tr- sometimes try to, like, mansplain, like, audio engineering the show that you've done 200 times and the- they're, like, random locals? No. Not. Well. <laughs> I've not encountered that on this tour. In other jobs I have worked, there have definitely been times that people question why I do things. Or the way I do them, that I feel may not get the same reaction if I had been a man or male presenting. Yeah. But that's something that I think I've tended to encounter when it's a situation that someone is very either insecure about their job or their skill set. I feel like you are so great at like, like you just have the competence gene And, like, you can tell that you know what you're doing and, like, you're very, like, practical and kind of, like, no-nonsense. But you're also, like, yeah, you're also a very nice, young, small woman. So it's just interesting to kind of, again, from the outside, kind of look in and be like, oh, wow, like, how do you walk that line of being, like, very sweet, obviously, um, but you're not really being taken advantage of. There have definitely... In my experience, there are definitely times that I just let it go, but there are also times when I will stop someone and say, I appreciate that that's a way to do it, but for this, for this show, for this reason, we need to do it this way, and I need you to do this right now. Mm-hmm. Never reacting with, trying not to react with anger or frustration. But just saying like, that, yes, that's an option, but for, for this particular show, it needs to be done a certain way because you're never working in a bubble. You're always working with other departments. You're always being cognizant of all of the actors and knowing what they expect and what can change and what cannot. It seems like soft skills are super important in this role because it just both of us have roles where there are quantitative, like, technical aspects where, like, at the end of the day, like, it is a trumpet-playing job and I need to play that trumpet part well. It's like, you have sound engineering work to do and we were trained for that. But I think, at least I wasn't expecting that at least 80% of the job for me is just, like, dealing with people and making sure that things are fine and, like, interacting and um, getting along with people. And it's, I guess... I think it's just like a life thing and a workplace thing, but it's just not what I was expecting. And even from what you're saying now, it seems like a huge part of the job, aside from the things that you kind of mentioned that you do day to day, um, in terms of like official things you need to do, it's also like being really tolerant, being really patient, being competent, being assertive and knowing when to be assertive. Like these all seem very important. The soft skills are the hardest part of any backstage role, in my opinion, because they're the things that are hardest to teach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also just seems like 
the brunt of that maybe falls on us, especially as women, to just be more, like, socially aware and attuned to how people are doing and to, like, cater to people's needs, which isn't necessarily super fair. And I guess this leads me to my question of where do you kind of see the future of musical theater heading? How do we get more equitable casts, pits, crews, all of it? I think more than anything, it's just about access. If if you don't have exposure to the arts, you're never going to know that these jobs exist. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're someone who grows up lower income and you don't have that support system through school or community events, there's no way to increase the diversity of something if people don't know it exists. And also things like school music programs need to be funded because for a lot of kids, you can't afford to take private lessons. Mm -hmm. But if they give you the instrument and give you the lessons and give you a teacher who is in a financial position to devote their time and energy to their students the way that they want to, then you're going to end up with kids who are better at math, better at reading. There are so many benefits to having music programs in the schools for a wealth of knowledge that just helps kids develop, and yet it keeps getting cut. Right. So I think it's about access at that level and exposure to the arts, but it's also about understanding that for a lot of people, if they want to pursue this, but the only jobs that are entry level are internships that pay pennies on the hour for the amount of work you're being asked to do, that's a financial barrier that some people just cannot overcome. Totally. And especially if you're of an age that you're living by yourself or helping support a family, there isn't a great option there to pursue that without an outside resource. Mm -hmm. So if we can make sure that we're operating in a way that we tell people and teach them about the arts and they care, and then we set ourselves up for success with funding, with grants, with how businesses are run, so that we can pay everyone an equitable living wage, it will come because people exist out there from every community who would be amazing musicians would be amazing stage managers, amazing lighting designers. It's just a matter of where does life push them. There's oh, a yeah. reason my pre-tour like TED Talk hook was that I was supposed to be an investment banker, and that's not because I wanted to be an investment banker. It was like the prospect of being financially independent, and that would pay three times more than like this tour. Um, in a year. In a year. Yeah. In a year. Yeah. So it's like society can say we love the arts, like theater is so fun, but if they're not putting the money where their mouth is, like, in funding these programs and, like, paying um, people in the arts a living wage, you're right that it is going to kind of gatekeep it. And as much as I love to say fund the music programs, that also means just improving the educational system, too. No one goes into teaching or the arts because oh, it's such an easy job, you go in knowing that it's going to be a struggle, and you do it anyways. Yeah, also, like, I know we've talked about, like, what you want to do, maybe, like, more down the line, and how you really enjoy teaching and want to do that yeah. as well, um, which I think is amazing. And it also, like, what you were saying just now, with, like, reforming the whole educational system and, like, how it's all interconnected, like, both professions are so important, 
and both professions attract amazing people who want to like do meaningful work and because both professions are also so critically like underfunded and fucked up they both have like incredibly high rates of burnout like how many people in the arts like pivot out after a couple of years because oh, they just yeah. get so dissuaded and discouraged and how many like amazing <sighs> teachers are out there who just end up selling out the systems that we have at hand and the way that our society is structured just makes that a nearly impossible thing to really pursue and hopefully there will be change in our lifetimes hopefully sooner hopefully we can push for it yeah totally um my last question yes so every interview i try to have my guest kind of break down either a piece of music or a musical concept um and i know that there is a song that you want to talk about yes um the song is called madokara mieru it is by christopher tin who is a composer who does orchestral and choral and vocal pieces, uh, but he also does video game music, and all of his pieces have a great amount of emotion behind them. So the song I picked is off of one of his albums that every song is in a different language. And I use it for sound checks because it has a lot of interesting pieces to it but also because it's a song I know really well and that's what you need when you're listening to a sound system you need to know how that song should sound so mm. you can make sure everything is going the way you need it to go um, so it starts off with a single voice and then it transitions to a female mature voice and then it has a full orchestral swell and I just I love the emotions it conveys, uh, but also the poetry between the layers that are shorter than a, an orchestral movement, but it really feels like a symphony in five acts. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll um, insert a bit of the sound to paint a picture. <laughs> What do you like about it specifically from like a sound design perspective since I'm sure you listen to music differently than laymen out there? From a sound design perspective, I like how nuanced it is. And I like how there are moments of tension and release. There are moments where it is swelling and massive and you feel caught up in it. But then there are also moments that pull back. And it's that dynamic shift that, to me, is a hallmark of most every good piece of music. 
because you have to understand how to get people to pay attention and listen. And silence is one of the most powerful tools we have. Yeah. Knowing when to increase things and when to make people uncomfortable, but also knowing when to just sit with something. Mm-hmm. Which is a big part of how I design shows as well when I do design work. You have to understand that sometimes the audience can get overwhelmed to the point that they're no longer processing what they're hearing. So you have to leave space for the music to breathe, for the words to breathe, for the intention to come through of whatever the piece is that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then if you're down to, like, break it down a little more into the nitty-gritty, how do you kind of specifically do that as a sound engineer? Uh, As an engineer or as a designer? First of all, explain (laughs) the difference. (laughs) Okay. So, a sound designer is the person who will come up with the system from a technical side, from the microphone to the sound console that is controlling everything to the speaker and all of the various pieces in between. And there's lots of little pieces. Mm -hmm. The sound engineer's job is to run the show as the designer intended. But that means they need to understand the intention. So as the designer, you are looking at a piece of theater and saying, what do I need to make this show successful? From a technical side, that's the speakers you need to make sure everyone hears everything. It's the microphones you're using that sound best on a certain instrument or on a certain voice. But then it's also looking at the show and saying, does this need a sound effect here to reinforce an idea we're making? Mm. If it's a play that you're doing that has the houses under construction... Is it helpful to have construction noise here because there's an argument happening and we need to break the tension during this pause in the conversation? Mm -hmm. Or would that become monotonous very quickly so we might start the sound effect under the scene and then slowly fade it out because otherwise it's just going to become background noise. Right. But also it will make your job harder because... You're adding more noise on top of the voices. So then it's harder to understand what the actors are saying. Yeah, and I guess that is like kind of analogous to this piece that you're sharing as well. Because it you can make that connection from sound designing like a show and then sound designing in a musical context. Like knowing when you want the horn line to kind of swell and come out and bringing that to people's attention in the forefront in the foreground, and then when you want it to kind of be more of, like, an inner voice that's, like, enhancing and people don't even know what that is, and I guess that's part of the deal. Yeah, it's very similar to when you're composing. You have to understand how the voices of all the instruments interact. Mm -hmm. And that, I always say that as an engineer when I'm mixing a musical, I'm playing an instrument. It's just an instrument that is a very smart computer. Right. With a lot of different controls instead of an instrument that I'm blowing air through. Well, thank you so much for your time. I super appreciate it. Of course. This has been lovely. And yeah, sad tour's ending. Gonna miss you and Grilled Cheese Squad a lot, but... I'm 
I'm so glad we got to work together. I'm sure we will see each other in the future on other gigs. Paths will converge. Exactly. Very soon.